Hello, I'm Noel Lim on ASEAN Speaks by Maybank. Today we discuss the extent of ASEAN's decoupling from a potential US recession and when Malaysia might hold its general elections now that the tabling of Budget 2023 has been brought forward. Vincent Poon, the head of fixed income research, moderates the call. Hi, good morning everyone. It's 8 o'clock on Monday. A quick recap for last week. US stocks plunged on Friday after Chair Powell's speech at the Jackson Hole Forum. As he said, the Fed will likely need to maintain a restrictive policy stance for some time in order to restore price stability and he warned against prematurely loosening policy. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq indices fell more than 3%, the worst daily decline since mid-June. But interestingly, the reaction in US Treasury market was relatively mild. The 10-year use was little change at 3.05% on the day. Currently, the Fed Fund's futures are pricing in more than 80% probability for another 75-bit hike in September and a peak rate of 3.8% by early 2023. In ASEAN, stock market performance was mixed. Thailand index still ended higher by about 1%, despite the political uncertainty after the Constitutional Court has suspended Prime Minister Prayut from his official duties pending a review on his eight-year term limit. Um, US and China reached a prelim deal to allow US regulator to review audit documents of Chinese companies in the US, easing concerns on the delisting of about 200 firms in the New York exchanges. Uh, in China, the government adds another $1 trillion stimulus to support the economy and the property sector. Loan prime rates were also uh, cut by 5 bps for the one year and 15 bit for the five year tenor. A bank Indonesia hike rate by 25 bit. The central bank also raised its inflation forecast, but announced an operation twist in its bond purchase program, which allows um, selling short term government bonds while buying long term government bonds, uh, anchoring the yield curve. Uh, on Malaysia, the tabling of budget has been brought forward by three weeks um, to the 7th of October, according to news report, raising speculation of an early election. And we later, we have Sohaimi to comment on this. And on Singapore, wearing masks will no longer be mandatory from today, including indoors, except on public transport and in healthcare facilities. Global commodity prices were broadly higher last week. A brand crude price increased more than 4% to above $100 per barrel. Uh, base metals, agriculture and livestock commodities were all higher. Looking ahead this week, no central bank meeting, but we have Eurozone CPI on Wednesday and the US jobs report on Friday. And this morning, we have Hubbin, a thematic report on ASEAN decoupling from a potential U.S. recession risk, and also Singapore macro updates. We have Juye on Indonesia macro, um, Singapore Sohaimi on Malaysia budget date, uh, Andy on ringgit and U.S. dollar update, Han on Thailand equity portfolio, and Samuel on grab results. Let's start with uh, Habin. ASEAN, you wrote a report that uh, ASEAN is a defensive play amid rising uh, U.S. recession risk. What underpinned the relative resilience of ASEAN economies? I think you have um, six arguments on this. Uh, do you see any differentiation uh, within ASEAN, like which country will hold up better and which one will be more exposed in the event of a US recession? Hey, hi, morning, Winston. 
So yeah, ASEAN, you know, when you look back at the first half, is emerging as a defensive harbor and has partly decoupled from the US economic downturn and potential recession. So growing in the first half, ASEAN 5 GDP excluding Singapore was, uh, uh, was 5.4%. And it looks like it's gonna hold up with about 5.3% in the second half by our estimates. And we're looking at 4.9% next year, despite slowing US, you know, China global growth. Uh, historically, growth in Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand has been more correlated with the US business cycle uh, because of their more you know, ex export-oriented, while growth in Indonesia, Philippines are far less correlated. Um, so there are kind of six arguments why there may be a partial decoupling. Uh, one is the reopening boost is still not totally over with accommodation, food services, construction, air transport, you know, still well below pre-pandemic levels as ASEAN lives with COVID. Second point is actually strengthening intra-ASEAN trade, which is helping to partially offset weaker G3 and China trade. So in the first half, you know, that, that was roughly about 30% year on year. And when you look at the share of intra-ASEAN trade, that's actually been rising uh, over time. The third point is the, the rising FDI and shifting manufacturing supply chains to ASEAN. That seems to be playing out uh, with very sharp increases, especially in uh, Indonesia, you know, uh, particularly in manufacturing and some of the electric vehicle space, uh, as well as Malaysia for electronics, Singapore as well up, you know, uh, 30% in the first half, and, um, and Vietnam still holding up pretty nicely. The only exception here is perhaps Thailand. And the fourth point is actually elevated in energy and food prices, uh, which benefits energy exporters, Indo, Malaysia, and food exporters, you know, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, some of the CLMV countries as well. So even though um, you know, recessions are deflationary, we don't think that um, some of these commodity prices will come off as much as in past recessions, or simply because of the reasons you know, we've seen, right? The supply chain disruptions, the, the energy transition, as well as on the climate change impact. The fifth point is the less aggressive interest rate hiking cycle in ASEAN, uh, perhaps with the exception of Philippines and Singapore. But we've only seen Indonesia and Thailand hike once, uh, Vietnam has not even hiked at all. Malaysia has, has hiked twice. Um, and that's going to help you know, cushion the impact, especially on the domestic demand side. And the sixth point is this relocation of headquarters in talent from Hong Kong and capital inflows from greater China, simply because of the US-China ongoing geopolitical rivalry, which I don't think is going to end anytime you know, soon at all, and uh, the very divergent COVID strategies. So that's helping especially Singapore um, on the financial sector side. Uh, I mean, a big wild card, you know, that could really help with the decoupling is, of course, uh, the timing of China's reopening. Um, you know, we don't know whether it's end of this year or whether it's next year, but when it does, there could be a major boost to ASEAN's tourism and exports. And on the topic of U.S. recession, which looks increasingly likely, and the U.S. rates market is also implying uh, a recession, uh, pricing in a small rate cut from the second half of 2023. Um, but interestingly, I think you mentioned this recession, if it were to happen, it likely would be a shallow rather than a deep one. Uh, why is it the case and how will this affect the US inflation outlook and Fed policy? So like you said, the probability of US, US recession over the next 12 months has risen. 26% um, you know, probability based on our estimates of three month, 10 year term spread. Um, so it's on the verge of uh, uh, inverting. But it looks as if the US recession this time may be shallow rather than deep, cushioned by labor shortages in the reopening sectors, as well as, a, as, well as healthier household and corporate balance sheets. 
we look at the US uh, household debt leverage uh, today, it's about 67% of GDP. That's much lower than the 85% just before the GFC. Uh, when you look at the US household's uh, cash balance sheet, uh, the good news is that they've amassed an estimated 2.6 trillion of excess savings during the pandemic, simply because they can't spend, you know, stuck lockdowns, but have drawn down only about 160 billion. When we look at the non-financial US corporate debt, pretty high, 78% of GDP, uh, actually slightly higher than the GFC ratio of 68%, but below the peak of 91% just two years back. Yeah, so I think um, yeah, there's been some adjustment on the debt equity ratio simply because in anticipation of the Fed rate heights and refinancing. Cash held by US companies have also ballooned to about 1.3 trillion from 840 billion. And of course, I think the US banks are a lot better capitalized owing to more stringent regulatory standards imposed in the wake of the GFC. So, you know, our guess is that it will be a recession, but it's going to be uh, shallow. But I think it could be uh, prolonged, you know, so uh, a shallow but prolonged recession. Simply because on the inflation side, we don't think it probably can fall as fast. Um, when we calculate some of the numbers and the sacrifice ratio uh, using some of the past historical data, we estimate that unemployment rate will need to rise to about 6.3%, roughly from the 3.5% today, to fall to the Fed's 2% target. And the labor market is still pretty tight, you know, suggesting that taming wage growth to pre-pandemic levels is going to be difficult. So elevated inflation, I think, will make for a very, um, will constrain the Fed's policy response, which means that the rates will probably be higher for longer. Some updates on Singapore macro. Uh, inflation heat up again in July. Headline CPI jumped to 7%. But at the same time, manufacturing growth slowed sharply. And you mentioned there is a risk of a technical recession for Singapore in third quarter. How do you think these factors will affect MS monetary policy? Yeah, so industrial production slowed quite dramatically, 0.6%, in part because of the punch, uh, yeah, plunge in um, semiconductors, electronics. So I think it's very obvious now that the uh, yeah, global chip cycle, electronic cycle is, uh, is hitting lower um, and actually quite quickly. So that... Um, in terms of technical recession, you know, Singapore 2Q GDP was actually a negative Q and Q. And I think by our calculations, we look, it looks like the real risk of, a, of another Q and Q uh, contraction in the, in the third quarter, given the very sharp uh, plunge in some of the electronics production side. And you know, the MES faces a dilemma because in the face of a technical recession, at the same time, inflation is headed higher. Um, headline jumped to 7% in July, core is 4.8%. So it's basically at the top end of the sort of MS forecast uh, inflation ranges really. Um, so I don't think they have really have a choice. You know, inflation is probably the priority. So come October at the meeting, they probably have to tighten again for the fifth time. They, and we are looking for a recentering of the same year towards the prevailing level of exchange rate. Thanks, Habin. Uh, let's move to Indonesia. Ajuyi, uh, Bank Indonesia finally started rate tightening and raised the interest rate by 25 BIP last week. It is the last central bank in ASEAN 5 to tighten. Before this, Bank Indonesia sounded pretty sanguine on Indonesia inflation outlook. What has changed? And there has been concern that Bank Indonesia has fallen behind the curve on policy tightening. Do we expect more aggressive hike ahead? Hi, morning, everyone. Yeah, so uh, during the monetary policy meeting last week, Governor Perry uh, did state that this decision to hike uh, was a preemptive step 
to mitigate the rise, uh, the risk of rising co-inflation, uh, as well as inflation expectations, uh, because of the increase in non-subsidized flow prices, as well as volatile food inflation. And as you mentioned, uh, BI has raised its inflation forecast uh, significantly. Uh, it's now looking at headline CPI to rise above 5% this year, uh, compared to their previous estimate of 45 to 4.6%. Whereas core CPI is forecasted at 4.2%, uh, compared to their previous guidance of coming in within the 2 to 4% range. Uh, the governor highlighted that BI is seeing evidence of second round effects of the uh, rise in energy and food prices. And he added that inflation next year may also breach BI's 2 to 4% target. Uh, we think that uh, BI's substantial revision of, the, of its inflation forecast may also uh, be incorporating somewhat a hike in subsidized fuel prices. Uh, we are still expecting the BI to deliver two more rate hikes this year, uh, most likely in the fourth quarter. BI may pose in the September meeting, uh, given that it's in the reserve requirement ratio uh, for the final time to 9% from the current 7.5% in order to absorb liquidity. I'm uh, looking at uh, two more rate hikes uh, in 2023 uh, for BI. On the topic of fuel subsidy, uh, do you think the government is going to raise the tetalite price soon? And what do you think is the impact on inflation? Yep, the government has uh, been revealing plans to hike subsidized fuel prices. Uh, the price of beta light, which is the most widely consumed fuel in Indonesia, accounting for 63% of total consumption, has stayed unchanged since 2019, uh, and it's currently near, uh, nearly half of the market price. And the finance minister cautioned last week that if uh, fuel prices remain unchanged, uh, the additional subsidy burden would rise by 40% to 700 trillion rupiah uh, from the current allocation of 500 uh, trillion rupiah. Uh, there was some guidance. Uh, the deputy chair of the energy committee stated in an interview this week uh, that Pertamina is considering raising Pertamina uh, prices by 30% to 10,000 rupiah per liter and diesel prices by 40% to 7,200 per liter. And uh, we estimate that a 30% hike in Petalite price would add around 2 percentage points to headline CPI and 0.8 percentage points to core CPI. Uh, we recently raised our inflation forecast for headline CPI, uh, the base case to 4.8% from the previous 39 for this year and to 4% from the previous 3% in 2023. But under a 30% hike scenario, uh, we would uh, see much faster inflation. Uh, in this case, we would uh, look at headline CPI at 5.2 this year and 6% for 2023. Uh, I also want to add that the fuel price hike would also likely prompt BI to hike at a much faster pace, uh, possibly by an additional 25 or 50 bips this year on top of our base case of 75 bips. And for 2023, uh, it may also hike by another 50 bips on top of our base case of 50 bips. And that could bring the policy rate to as high as 5.75%. Uh, that would be the highest since 2019 by end of next year. Thanks, Julie. Uh, we'll move to Malaysia. Uh, so, Jaime, according to a news report, the tabling of budget 2023 has been brought forward to 7 of October. And speculation is rife that um, GE15 and may come early in November. Uh, what is your thought on this? Hi, um, 
morning, everyone. Uh, as you said, budget 2023 will be tabled on 7 October, uh, three weeks earlier than the original date of 28 October this year. Uh, this means Parliament session will be brought forward from the original 26 October to 15 December. Um, Parliament Speaker to give MPs at least 28 days notice of the new dates, suggesting uh, late September or early October session for the next uh, Parliament sitting. Um, 15 January election is due anytime between now until the Parliament's five-year term ends in mid-July uh, 2023. And um, was only one general election that happened soon after the tabling of budget, such that there wasn't enough time to debate and pass the budget. And that was the 10th general election in 1999. Uh, budget for the year 2000 was tabled on 29 October 1999. Parliament was dissolved on 11 November 1999 and uh, polling date was on 29 November 1999. Uh, and after general election, uh, Parliament reconvened for a special session just before Christmas of that year to table and pass supplementary supply bill for government expenditure on essentials like civil service salaries, pensions and debt service charges for early 2000. Uh, budget 2000 itself was retabled uh, on 25th February 2000 and passed on 12th April 2000. So we may be looking at that scenario again this time around. Do you think an early action will affect our views or forecast on growth, inflation or the OPR? Mm, regardless of the timing of next GE, I mean, for now we are leaving our growth, inflation and interest rate forecast unchanged. Uh, to recap, we expect real GDP growth to pick up from 3.1% uh, last year to 6% this year before easing to 4% next year. Inflation to accelerate from 2.5% last year to 3.4% this year and 4% next year. And we are pricing in another 75 basis point hikes in overnight policy rate from current 2.25% uh, to return to pre-COVID-19 level of 3% by the first quarter of next year. Thanks, Sir Jaime. Still on Malaysia, uh, we have Andy uh, to update us on the ringgit. Um, Andy, uh, do you think it will break 450? I think a common question we usually get from foreign investors is why the ringgit hasn't held up as strong as the rupiah? despite both being the beneficiaries of higher commodity prices. And what is our outlook for the rest of the year? Hi, morning, Vincent. Uh, indeed, um, like you mentioned, uh, Ringgit has, um, for example, weakened by about 7% year to date. Uh, if you compare uh, Rupiah, it is about half of it, more, slightly above half of it, which is about 3.9% uh, weaker only compared to the Ringgit. I think there are a few reasons. Um, in particular, in our piece that we just uh, released last week, uh, we highlighted uh, two things uh, which stood out, uh, which is one, the broader dollar moves, which is the Fed stance, uh, the haven demand uh, moves, and which is in, in particular shown with the interest rate differential or policy rate differentials between the Fed and, of course, uh, Bank Negara, uh, which is quite significant because for Malaysia, our current uh, policy rate is about 2.25% for Malaysia. Uh, compared to the Fed, uh, which is already hiked uh, already. And if you compare with Indonesia, which has a yield about higher, about 3, about 1.5% higher at 3.75%, uh, 
uh, they've already raised 25 basis points and I think uh, markets are expecting another 50 basis point hike by the end of the year. So a bit of the lag side of things have led um, to uh, the uh, widening policy differentials and led to some of the expected weakening on that front. The second factor is on the China front. The China macro outlook, I think, remains um, sort of soft and likely to remain a key driver for ringgit as well. For example, if you look at the moves after the Powell's uh, announcement or speech last Friday, uh, CNH or offshore CNY has actually broke the 690 level. Uh, it's at currently at about 691 level. And, and if you look at our report, we found that China uh, factor actually plays a significant role in affecting ringgit. In fact, uh, China renminbi has actually weakened almost 7.5% year to date, uh, somewhat close to what ringgit has actually moved, which is about 7%. So with uh, renminbi, offshore renminbi and renminbi being weaker and possibly over this week as well, we would expect uh, ringgit to continue to weaken. I would not rule out uh, possibly ringgit definitely breaching 450 anytime soon if the renminbi approaches the 7 level on the offshore and also beyond 690 for uh, the CNY currency as well. So those two factors, I think, differentiate somewhat uh, in terms of the correlations uh, or relationships between uh, some of these factors compared to the rupiah, despite the quality uh, sort of uh, the pinnings, uh, which are similar for both sides as well, even with oil uh, uh, actually so strengthening and actually softening now as well. Winston? How about the US dollar? Um, the dollar strength has been running for, for quite some time. Do you think this can continue? Uh, my view is that in terms of, um, I mean, last week, Powell just raised the likelihood of last Friday of Fed keeping rates elevated uh, levels for a while yet uh, to ensure the sufficient demand reduction uh, to bring price pressures lower. This, uh, while not expected to boost dollars significantly higher, given some expectations for hawkish Fed prior, actually may lend dollars some resilience yet, uh, I think, uh, for the next several months. So in that case, uh, until more discernible signs of Fed growth moderation, especially jitters in the job markets, uh, lead to reemergence of bets on Fed dovish tilt or the pivot side of things, uh, we think that the dollar strength uh, could continue to take um, some support going forward over the next few months or at the very least the next four weeks in our view. Thanks, Andy. We'll move to Thailand. We have Han to update us on Thailand equities. Um, Han, how has the market performed so far? Uh, you mentioned in your report foreign inflow has been strong uh, this year. Uh, do you expect more upside? And can you share with us your sector recommendation? Yeah, in terms of Thai stock market performance, this year has actually been doing quite well if you compare against other MSCI Asian and Japan countries. MSCI Thailand is um, negative 2% in US dollar returns this year, which puts it just behind MSCI Indonesia's positive 7% return this year. Um, we are actually expecting more upside and this is mainly due to foreign flows because if you look at historically, there's a high correlation in terms of Thai stock market return to foreign flows. And we think that there may be a further room for all these net inflows that we observed this year to further increase. Because if you look back into a period from 2017 to 2021, there was a total net outflow of 21 billion US dollar, where compared against a year-to-date net inflow is only 
US 3.6 billion. And this indicates that um, it may just only be the beginning of the net foreign inflows. And also, if you look at the foreign participation of the daily trading volume, this year it has increased to 45%. This compared against only a 26% in 2016, which indicates that um, foreign, part foreign participation, this is going to have an increasing influence on the Thai stock market. And in terms of sectors, uh, we like sectors which are attractively valued and sectors where foreign active funds are currently overweight. And this would include banks, consumer staples, and energy. On portfolio strategy, I think you constructed a few portfolio, a model portfolio. Which one is your top recommendation and is there one that can provide better resilience in the event of a US economic slowdown? Uh, our top pick is a value model portfolio because a value in Thailand has been lagging behind the performance of growth. If you look at its year-to-date performance, it has underperformed growth by 3.5%. This is um, very different from the value versus growth out performance that we witnessed in Asia as Japan and also in ASEAN countries. So we expect the performance of value stocks in Thailand to catch up to this value versus growth out performance that we witnessed. And uh, in terms of um, in the event that there's a US economic downturn, our portfolio choice will depend on how severe that the downturn could be and also how much ASEAN economies have actually decoupled from um, the US economy. Of course, in the event of um, a less severe economic downturn, we think that the flows into the net flows into ASEAN could actually continue and value portfolio will still be our preferred choice because, because of its high allocation to sectors which are currently preferred by foreign active funds. And, and of course, if it turns into a more severe downturn, then maybe one could look at uh, portfolios such as um, high quali uh, quality and low volatility portfolios, where we expect stocks with um, higher earnings quality and stocks with lower volatility and lower beta to outperform the market. Okay, thanks, Han. We'll move to Samuel. Um, last week, Grab reported its second quarter financial results and you have a sell call on the stock. Why is it the case? Is the business outlook still challenging? And where do you think Grab stand in comparison with its competitors? Uh, yes, Winston, we have a sell call on the stock, but we have increased the target price from $2.29 to $2.83. As we see that Grab is making progress on profitability. 2Q22 adjusted EBITDA or EBITDA as a percentage of GMV, gross merchandise value, improved for the third consecutive quarter to negative 4.6% from negative 6% last quarter. Grab's mobility EBITDA margin of 12% on GMV is higher than Uber's 6%. Its improvement from last quarter has given us the confidence to switch to Uber as the peer from Lyft resulting in an increase of the EV sales multiple from 1.1 times to 1.8 times. On the delivery front, we have studied a universe of food delivery companies and correlation between profitability and AEBITDA as a percentage of GMV has emerged with more profitable companies being rewarded for higher profitability. 
Grab's 2Q22 results of negative 1.4% of GMV is better than Deliveroo and Delivery Hero, but comparable to just Eat Takeaway. So far in our universe of general delivery peers, only Uber and Meituan have been profitable on an EBITDA as per their GMV basis. We see that the grocery delivery business that Grab has ventured into has good profitability potential with HelloFresh registering a 6% EBITDA as a percentage of GMV. However, at the cost of uh, profitability, um, Grab has increased commission rates and decreased incentives, and this has come at the cost of growth potential. Grab's guidance for next quarter indicates a shrinkage of negative 3% to a stagnant 1% growth of GMV. On this super app front, we studied super apps across Asia in our report titled Super App The Battle for ASEAN Hegemony. Grab is lagging behind its peers in mini apps development, which is an asset-like strategy that WeChat and Alipay pioneered with much success in China. Grab announced this super app strategy four years ago and has made no progress on mini-app development, favoring acquisitions and organic investments to accomplish its everyday, everything agenda, which is highly capital-intensive. Risks have mounted following the Russia-Ukraine war and Fed hikes, which prompted our initial downgrade of Grab from buy to sell. While its mobility business will be more resilient, delivery services are consumer discretionary and their rapid slowdown this quarter is a sign that macro and idiosyncratic factors are weighing on this segment, in particular, food inflation is at all-time high based on the FAO index. Droughts in Europe, US and China, and a fertilizer shortage could compromise global harvest next year and worsen the situation. Grab's decline since 421 can be attributed to rising interest rates. However, the inverse relationship between uh, with 10-year treasury yields and correlation to 10-year, 2-year treasury spreads are beginning to weaken or break. Overall, fundamentals are increasingly becoming more important than macro factors such as rising interest rates. We want to also note that Grab's insolvency risks are increasing. Our forecast suggests that Grab may have to raise capital in 2024, not to mention the capital burden of digital bank investments in Malaysia and Singapore, which will have minimal capital requirements to meet in three to five years of close to 1 billion Singapore dollars. Even after incorporating our optimism on profitability, our target price of $2.83 is still below where Grab is currently trading. As such, we are maintaining, maintaining our sell call. Okay, thanks Samuel. Uh, thanks everyone for joining the call. Have a good week. Download the reports discussed at our Maybank Trade app or speak to your trading rep. Happy trading. I'm Noel Lim on ASEAN Speaks by Maybank.